Hey, welcome to night school. I just got back from taking Batty into the groomer for the first time to have his glands exposed. That's gland with a D, not glands as in part of the penis. Those words are pretty similar, gland and glands. And D and S are just right next to each other on the keyboard, too. But yeah, a dog having his glands exposed is an entirely different thing. This is gland. And it turns out dogs have these anal glands that fill up with fluid, and sometimes you have to have them drained. And apparently they drain them by sticking a finger in the dog's rear end. And I guess, I, I, I don't know, I didn't witness it, but I assume that they apply pressure to drain these. I don't know, it's a pretty, it seems like a pretty casual process, and I didn't realize that. It's one of those things you learn as a first-time dog owner, that sometimes your dog has these anal glands that have to be expressed. And that's really strange to me. I've been thinking about it all day. I've been thinking about it since yesterday. Because yesterday he started rubbing his butt on the ground a lot, way more than usual. Because sometimes dogs are just trying to clean themselves. Sometimes they're just trying to clean, and they so they'll rub their butt on the carpet. But he was doing it a lot, and so I called his previous owner, and I was just like, hey, he's, he's rubbing his butt constantly today. What's up? And so he, he needs to have his glands expressed. And that, that phrasing of that is really interesting. I've been, just been thinking about it constantly, expressing his gland, expressing his glands. And in this case, expression means draining. And that seems weird with the way that we think about expression as human beings. Like when we express ourselves, I mean, the idea of expression has become so correlated with just talking, creating, a human being just communicating, that the idea of expression as some sort of biological function, like draining a gland that is filled with fluid, really opens my mind to what expression actually means, which is draining, which is getting something out. And that's what it is for me. You know, as much as I hate self-expression sometimes, it's obviously necessary for me and I can't stop doing it. But I mean, this show to me might as well be expressing a gland. This show might as well be me draining my some sort of mental gland that is filled up, and, and sometimes it just keeps coming. Sometimes that gland just keeps filling up with liquid, and no matter how much I express myself, it's not enough. But that's it's just an interesting thing about the, the dog situation, where I, I just never imagined that I had to think about my dog's anal gland, glands, there's, there's multiple, there's two, I guess, I don't know, I don't know how many. I don't, I don't even know. See, I don't even know. I didn't even research it. I decided not to research it because I thought it would freak me out. The people were wonderful, though. And, you know, it's one of those things that you don't realize, you know, having cats my entire life, you know, having cats from the time I was born and, you know, the last two years are the only two years in my life where I have not owned a cat. And you do have a certain pride for when your cat is friendly or behaves well, but it's an entirely different story with a dog because dogs are so expressive. You know, when a dog expresses itself, 
when it barks or snarls or nips at somebody, it's far more threatening than a cat. Like a cat has to corner you. And it's not fun to have a cat bite you or scratch you and yet it gets infected and all this stuff and it, it, it hurts. They, they're like, their teeth are like little scalpels. So it's not fun to get attacked by a cat. It's horrible. But there's something far more threatening about a dog expressing itself, even a tiny dog like mine. And I'd taken him to the vet a while back and they, they made this big deal about how aggressive he was and I had to suggest muzzling him which you'd think that they would just know automatically. Like these people run a veterinary clinic. You'd think that they would be like, oh, he's being aggressive, let's muzzle him. But they made it sound like there was no solution. And it was during, this, it was during the height of Coronavi locker down. And they came to my car and they were like, oh, he's being very aggressive. We're not sure if we can check him. And I said, well, don't you have a muzzle? Don't you got a muzzle? And they were like, oh, yeah. And I was like, well, how about if you bring the muzzle out here and I'll put it on him? And sure enough, that worked. It was magical. His aggressive behavior, behavior, his aggressive behavior was neutralized just by putting the muzzle on him. So I brought the muzzle. I, I took him to the groomer today with his muzzle on. And uh, they took the muzzle off and they said he was a wonderful, good boy. And the pride you feel. Being a dog owner, I didn't realize the level of pride you feel when you're a little bit concerned about how your dog is going to handle having somebody stick a finger up his ass to express his glands. I, don't, I didn't know how he was going to handle that. I don't think he's ever had it done. And to find out that they took his muzzle off and he handled it really well, you know, it just makes you proud. It really does make your heart swell up with pride. I imagine I can't even imagine how parents feel about their children, but it is an interesting aspect of owning a dog versus owning a cat where you don't feel those same moments of pride. And I think it's in part because dogs are so expressive and so aggressive at times that when they behave well or people aren't freaked out by them or they're just genuinely nice and good, you're just like, oh, that makes me so happy that my dog made a good impression on somebody. These groomers were great. I want to preface what I'm about to say by saying these groomers were, I'll be going back. I'll be giving them my business indefinitely. It was a great experience. However, when I was looking them up, you know, and they're, I've seen this groomer around, like it's not far from my house, so I, I knew it existed. But I was looking up groomers in the area, and I found their Google listing. And their Google listing had all the normal information, you know, hours, the services they provide, whatever a normal business listing provides, hours, phone number, address, all of the practical details that a business should have on their Google listing. But one of the, one of the lines had the female symbol. You know, there's the male and female symbol, which I don't know, are, are those Greek? Where do those come from? It looks like an ankh. The female symbol is just an onk, isn't it? Probably not. Women are Egyptian. The reason why women are represented by an onk, an onk, is because they're from Egypt. All women come from Egypt. Um, it's my new theory. 
all women come from Egypt. This whole thing about women are from, men are from Mars, women are from Venus, women are from Egypt, men are from, I don't know where men are from. Even though I'm a man, I have no clue where men come from. Maybe, maybe it is Mars. Maybe they were right about Mars, but they were wrong about Venus. Men are aliens, women are Egyptian. Anyway, this is all because of the Ankh symbol, which, yeah, the listing it had that, that female Ankh symbol, and then it said, identifies as woman-owned. And I don't want to get into the whole culture war thing. I try to avoid it, but even though, even though my views, my basic principles have stayed relatively similar for many years, you know, I've changed as a person, certainly. I would say for the better. I would say that I'm a happier person than I used to be. More content. Maybe not happier, but just more content. More aware of, of the miracle of life, as I was saying last night. And I feel that just by staying me and not constantly trying to update myself to make other people like me, maybe... Or, or seem like I'm, you know, by not basically buying into this right side of history narrative, I feel that I've inevitably placed myself into the culture war. But I try to avoid talking about it directly because it's so omnipresent and it's so unavoidable. And this is a great example because I was looking at this listing to get, you know, I was trying to find a place that for a reasonable price is willing to stick their finger in my dog's ass. And drain his, to express his glands. And so it was just weird to see in this listing, it says, identifies as woman-owned. And I know that that's, you know, I'm not shocked by any of this stuff. I'm not surprised. I was able to see this, you know, I went to Evergreen in the mid-2000s. I am not surprised by any of the language. I'm not surprised by the fact that Google has a, a category on business listings that says whether or not they're women-owned. And in the last year, we've seen this massive push for black-owned businesses, women-owned businesses. You know, people want to know the identity of the owner. And I understand the, the logic of, oh, these people have been underrepresented in entrepreneurship. These people have been underrepresented in leadership. So... Let's encourage them. I understand the logic, even though I question some of that logic or question maybe more specifically the way that that logic is implemented and the way that it, there is this great overcompensation happening. Because certain people have been underrepresented in this country, and you can break down the reasons for that, and there's not one reason. There's not one reason why certain people have been underrepresented. Uh, so I don't always agree with the way that logic plays out, but I make an effort to understand the logic, and sometimes there is none. In the culture war, sometimes there is no logic, and I make a sincere, objective effort to understand where everyone is coming from. And I, and I can't always. I mean, the reality is I can't always, but I do try to recognize like where the logic exists. And in this case, I understand that advertising that you are a woman-owned business the idea is that let's encourage this and reinforce this 
because historically we haven't had a lot of women-owned businesses. I understand that logic, but the language in particular of the listing is what got me. The fact that it said identifies as a woman-owned business. Identifies. I don't understand why it didn't say woman-owned business. The fact that it said identifies as a woman-owned business. And that's been, you know, the word of the last five years that's just grown and grown is the idea of I identify as this. This is how I identify. And people will allow you to identify as some things that traditionally you might not have been allowed to identify as. Like if you're born a biological male, historically people may not have accepted the idea that you could identify as a woman. But then there are these limitations on that where it's like, but you can't identify as another race. You can't identify as a different economic class. Otherwise, people will be mad. But that word, that word of identifying, has become extremely popular with individuals and groups of people. But this might be the first time that I've seen a business listed as identifies as a woman-owned business. Either you're a woman-owned business or you're not. So the idea of a company identifying as a woman-owned business just shows you how convoluted and, by its very definition, weird things are at the moment. And I hesitate to say this because I had such a good experience at this business. And you know what? When I saw that, and I, I think that speaks to my point of view on this, where it said identifies as a woman-owned business, and I rolled my eyes, but it didn't make me go somewhere else. I could have gone to Petco and gotten the same service done. There's a Petco equal distance away who does the same service. But I wanted to support this business, and I did, and I will again. And if anybody I know has a dog in this area, and they ever asked me about a groomer, I would tell them to go to this place. Based on my one experience there, it was a great, easy experience. So it didn't cause me, like seeing that they say on their Google listing, they identify as a woman-owned business, verbatim. That's exactly what it said. It didn't cause me to not go there. I didn't see that and go, oh, God, they're freaking liberal, liberal agenda. I just want to get my dog's anal glands expressed and I got to deal with the liberal agenda. It's a new angry, new angry voice. Batty's staring at me. <laughs> no, but I didn't, I didn't come from that point of view where I was like, oh, I don't want them to push their agenda on me. You know, it didn't cause me to make I didn't make a decision to not go to them. It didn't impact my decision one way or another because it's not even about this single business. I mean, businesses all throughout Olympia have that kind of thing going on. It's rare to find a business in Olympia that isn't playing into liberal politics one way or another, whether it's a rainbow flag in their window or whatever these new flags are because they... They've really got an interesting business. 
you know, the whole social activism industry is a good business model in many ways. I think it's short term. I don't think it's sustainable. But the idea that you're forcing people to buy a new flag every year. Like I just saw that the new flag has triangles, like these these indented triangles coming in from each side of the flag now. Like last year, a new flag suddenly started showing up where it was the rainbow flag that we've all seen for many, many years that has just become synonymous with homosexuality, I guess. And then uh, last year, this new one really, you started to see it all over, partially because of the popularity of the BLM movement. But you started to see this one that had this this new upside-down triangle cutting into the rainbow with, like, black, brown, white, pink, whatever, you know, I, I don't know what the pink one represents. But you saw that one. So everybody who had the rain, the same, everybody had the same rainbow flag for a decade. Everybody who cared about that. And then now they have to buy a new one. Because the thing is, if you, if your rainbow flag isn't the current one, you're excluding someone. So if you're going to express yourself, if you're going to express yourself in that way, you actually have to buy the updated flag. Otherwise you're leaving someone out. And I just saw that there's a new flag that has now triangles coming in on each side with new colors. So it's it's on a business level, it's smart. It's like, hey, we, we're going to keep people buying flags every year. Every year a new stripe is added to the flag, and if you don't have the current flag, you're not being inclusive enough. So I'm used to that around here. I'm used to almost every store being fairly outspoken in their politics. And uh, again, like I, it didn't cause me to make a decision one way or another, but it's, it's just something that you have to contend with. And, and the idea of identifying as a woman-owned business was just so strange to me, even though it's not surprising or shocking. Because I have older relatives, and not just on the right. You know, I have, I have some older t- relatives on the right, who found out about all this culture war stuff in the last couple of years. They may have been kind of peripherally aware of some of it. Like they were aware of BLM. They're aware of, of gay pride. But all of the little language and details that people have been just awash in during the last year, year and a half. Like I have these older relatives who see things like that and they don't even know how to comprehend it. But it's not just relatives on the right. It's not just older people on the right. It's also people on the left, people who have always considered themselves liberals. Even they don't understand this stuff. Even they can't completely comprehend the fact that... uh, They can't comprehend the language of of saying you identify as a woman-owned business. What does that mean? And uh, so even liberals, I think, are have been kind of surprised by the language. But the difference is a lot of moderate liberals are as surprised as anybody when the far left starts speaking that way. And at this point, it's not even the far left. It's just it's just the mainstream. It's mainstream politics. It's mainstream. It's mainstream social discourse 
to talk this way. So it's, we're not even talking about something that's buried in the corners of extreme politics anymore. It's all mainstream. But the, one of the differences between somebody who's right-leaning versus left-leaning is when these ideas surprise them, the right-wing tends to think, no matter what, I can't give in to this. No matter what, at the very least, I've got to hold my ground and not give in to this new thing they're forcing upon us, this new strange way of speaking that doesn't make any sense. And the difference with the left is that when the left is surprised by some new talking point that's picking up popularity on the far left, they think, oh, crap, I've got to update myself. When they see that the new flag has more stripes and more triangles, they think, oh, crap, I've got to buy the new flag. Oh, crap. I've got to believe in, in this. I've got, they, they think, I've got to update myself. And there's nothing wrong with updating yourself. But you can see where the motivation is self-serving and twisted. And a lot of it is based on just sheer social survival, not wanting to be called out for being backwards or hateful. And I want to close out this this culture war angle, at least directly. I mean, it, it, again, like I can't really avoid being part of this. And I don't even like that phrase, culture war, but it's the popular phrase. And people hopefully know what I'm referring to when I say it. But just to close out this thought about the culture war, there's the dilemma of particularly on the left, and this is another difference between, I think, people who are left-leaning and right-leaning. On the left, you see a lot more mottos like silence is violence, the idea that not speaking about an issue makes you complicit. But then if you do express yourself, I'm never going to think about the word expression the same way again. After finding out that my dog having his anal glands drained is called expression, I will never think about expression the same way again. For the better. It's expanded my understanding of expression. Uh, but, you know, this, this idea that, like, if you don't say anything about an issue that we are all concerned about, you're complicit in the worst aspects of that issue. If you're silent, you're complicit in violence. You're basically turning your head the other way from a crime being committed in front of you. It's like the Kitty Genovese story, like her screaming out and all the people in the apartments not doing anything. That's sort of the logic behind silence is violence. Which to me is a really ineffective slogan. It's a a very ineffective slogan. But the idea is that you have to say something. But then if you don't say the exact right thing, if you don't say the updated thing, well, now you're in trouble too. Now you're complicit too. Oh, you said the wrong thing. You have to express yourself, otherwise you are complicit in violence. But if you express yourself in even a subtly wrong way, you're complicit too. So it's this double bind. And that will make people go insane. I mean, I've read about how 
people who have been put in double bind situations by their parents, for example, at an early age, there's a correlation between being put in a double bind during your formative years and mental illness later on. And an example of a, a double bind would be like if you're a kid and your parent is mad at you, let's say you get in a fight with your parent as a kid and you say, I'm leaving. Or no, here's a better example. You get in a fight with your parent as a kid and your parent says, get out of here. I'm so sick of you. I'm so sick of you. Sick of you. Get out. And then the kid's like, okay, I'll leave. Okay, I'll leave. And the kid starts to leave the house and then the parent says, you can't leave. That's a double bind. Because on one hand, the parent has said, get out. And then when the kid goes along with it, the parent says, you can't leave. And that's like a Zen koan. That's like a cruel Zen koan. Because a lot of Zen koans are double binds. They're situations that break your normal human sense of logic. And it's interesting that, from my point of view, a lot of the, the, the approach of the left is filled with double binds. Because a difference that I do find with the right is that I don't know anybody on the right, I don't pay attention to anybody on the right who says silence is violence. There are a lot of people who say, you need to stand up and fight for, for traditional American values. You need to fight the left. There are people who are saying, like, you have to. If you care about A, B, or C, you have to fight X, Y, and Z. Otherwise, they're going to replace A, B, and C. You see a lot of that on the right. Like, you need to do something. But you don't see slogans like silence is violence. In fact, a certain level of stoicism, in my experience, is encouraged on the right. Because in today's world, it's a conservative approach to not talk about politics, to not talk about sex, to not talk about these hot issues in everyday conversation with people that you don't know and love and trust. So the right doesn't seem to see silence as a detriment to their own movement. And that's one of the big differences. So that's not a double bind. I, don't, I feel like there are fewer double binds. And while I'm critical of the right, too, it's to their credit that there are fewer double binds. Because double binds, when used appropriately, are great because they expand your understanding of the world. They, un, they, they, understand your, uh, they, they expand your understanding of the Dharma. You know, so that's why Zen koans, for example, force you to contend with contradiction, and you either realize that these contradictions are manufactured, and they're not contradictory, and they can coexist, or you realize that it doesn't matter that something is contradictory. Even if it is truly fundamentally contradictory, you realize that there is a way to even combine those into some sort of harmonic whole. And that's whole with a W, not an H. We're not talking about gland expression right now, for now. And 
But you can also break someone's mind negatively because the difference is with a Zen koan, that is a student or a practitioner who is seeking that. They are, they are seeking the result or, you know, I don't know if result is the right word. They are seeking that experience. That'd be the best way to put it. Somebody who is interested in a Zen koan is seeking that experience. They are seeking enlightenment and hundreds, thousands of years of teachings and scripture have made that path more available to people who want to have that experience. But there is a cruel double bind, which is the parent who says, get out of this house. And then the kid leaves and the parent says, get back in here. You can't leave. That sort of thing. And people do that to each other all the time. I've had fights with girlfriends years ago. I had a fight with a girlfriend, I remember, where it was pretty much exactly that. We had gotten in a fight for a reason I can't even remember, and I always think about that. I always think about how I don't ever remember the reason for fights with significant others. I only remember the fight itself. I never remember the reason, almost never remember the reason, which tells you something about how minor the issue actually probably was if I don't even remember it. But I still remember a time where like, I had this job where I had, to, I had to wake up you know, very early, and I had to be there at 6 a.m., and it was a little bit of a drive away. So I had to go to bed very early. At that point, I wasn't very good at doing that. And my girlfriend and I got in a fight about something, and it ended up being, I'm sure I was being a dick about something, but she ended up being like, you know, you need to go to sleep or something. You just need to go to sleep. And then when I started to go to sleep, she was like, you can't sleep. Like, this isn't over. You can't just go to sleep. You know, so it was like she put me in the situation where she was basically telling me to go to sleep just because she was done fighting. And then when I actually laid down to go to sleep, she was like, I'm not going to let you sleep. And she wasn't a nasty, you know, she was a good person. You know, she, I, I don't mean to make this sound like she's a monster because people can just do this. I don't mean to make it sound like the parent who does that to their kid is a monster either. It's just that we tend to put people in double binds as this kind of psychological punishment that we don't even realize we're doing. And the left has been doing that continually, which I think is one of the reasons why I am so critical of them. But yeah. I want to move on from that topic because it's been covered before. It has been covered before. I guess I'll I'll close it out by saying, you know, I've seen less free speech discussion lately because I think people have just kind of gotten used to the fact that this is an age of censorship, which is sad. But I see less people trying to fight that. I see fewer people actively trying to challenge that. And that is the deal breaker for me. Like, even though I'm, I'm more critical of the left than I might be the right, I don't know if that's true or not, but uh, I'm sure it comes across that way based on how I express myself. And I have no problem with coming across that way. I have zero problem with coming across more critical of the left than the right. Uh, but uh, with the free speech issue, I don't see that as political. 
I see that as humanitarian. And I see any opposition to free speech as fundamentally misanthropic, even if they believe they're guided by positive intentions. And no, absolute free speech isn't possible, even though that's an ideal I believe in. But I have been thinking lately, and there's a couple people who reached out to me who have been quite outspoken, a couple people that I know personally in town here, who have been quite outspoken in their opposition to free speech. And, you know, I don't, I'm not eager to see these people. Because I don't, I make it a point to not judge people for their politics. I have friends, probably most people I know, are left-leaning, if not full-on, what was once the far left and, and is now increasingly mainstream. But I do not judge my friends for that, even if I disagree, even if they think that calling your business, even if they think that referring to your business as identifying as woman-owned, even if they think that that's cool or a good idea, I'm not going to judge them for that. I'm not going to tell them what to do, and I'm just going to hope that they don't bring up politics so that I, and in that case, I use silence. Like when I'm at a party, like I was at a party last year and people were just sitting around. It was like an, it was like a social distancing party and everybody was sitting around and this is a group of young liberals and, you know, people in their thirties, but young liberals and they just launched into it because that's, I mean, a buddy of mine who lives in Portland was telling me like every party his girlfriend took him to, he'd just sit down with people that he didn't even know and they would just immediately launch into some story about how excited they were about Joe Obama bin Biden or this or that. And they don't think of that as inappropriate small talk because it's so ingrained in their life. Like that form of talking is so it saturated their their mind. It saturated their social group so deeply that they don't even think about the fact that other people at this party who seem agreeable and nice might not agree with them. Because in their mind, somebody who doesn't agree with them couldn't possibly be socially agreeable and nice. So they don't think anything about making small, t- small talk about polarizing issues. But I don't care, honestly, as long as somebody isn't actively campaigning against free speech. I don't really care. That's the one. Free speech is the one issue. And then you'll hear these geniuses, these genies, these genies who say when free speech comes up, they say free speech just means you can't be arrested for saying the wrong thing. Free speech just means that you're legally protected. It has nothing to do with not being a dick. It has nothing to do with not being fired from your job. And I say, I couldn't care less about the legal definition of the First Amendment. I couldn't care less about the First Amendment. I'm talking about something deeper than the Constitution. I'm I'm talking about something deeper than the Bill of Rights. 
I couldn't care less what a piece of paper says. I couldn't care less what the legality of free speech is. I couldn't care less what the First Amendment specifically refers to. I'm talking about something that transcends government. You know, it, it has nothing to do with the law. So people who try to, like, turn around and say, oh, well, the law doesn't say that. The law doesn't say that you can say anything wherever you want. No, it doesn't mean you can say anything you want. You know, uh, I'm not talking about the law. I'm talking about a basic human principle here. And I understand laws try to reflect that. The most well-intentioned laws try to reflect basic human principles, and they don't always succeed. But, you know, it's, it, that is one principle that if I feel that somebody... Like, because I have friends on the left who passively go along with ideas like hate speech laws. They casually go along with some of the censorship, some of the restrictions on speech. They casually go along with it. I'm not talking about them. Because I don't want to be the person saying to them, your silence about free speech is deafening. Your silence about, your silence about free speech is, is causing the censorship. I don't want to blame people's passivity for an issue that is aggressive in nature. Yeah, I don't like that I know people, that I care about people who are passive in the face of censorship. But I don't judge them for it, and it's not going to make me not want to spend time with them. However, if I feel that somebody is aggressively opposed to free speech, I don't want to be around them anymore. And I tolerated that for too long, in part because it was mostly just kind of fleeting conversation. It hadn't really solidified into what it is now. But there are a couple people here in town, and I'm not a, I'm not a popular person, so I'm not trying to sound like... Everybody's trying to get a piece of me now that coronavirus is whatever it is. But there's a couple people where, based on what they've said to me, what they've said in general is another thing, but from conversations that we have had, I don't want to be around them. Because anybody who is aggressively in favor of politically biased censorship I don't want to be around them. I don't feel comfortable around them because I'm only friends with people that I can express myself around. I am only friends. It doesn't mean I can say everything I want. Like if I'm hanging out with a female platonic friend, I don't say to, like, and I, and I see another hot girl. Like even though this is just a platonic friend that I'm with. And I, I'm going to do a whole series about how to be platonic friends with women. Because I do know quite a bit about it. But if I'm with a female platonic friend, there's no attraction between us. We are just friends. I'm not going to talk to her about a girl that I have a crush on in most cases, in most scenarios. Unless things are already underway, I'm also not going to talk too much about, like if I see a hot girl. I'm not going to say to my platonic female friend, oh my God, look at her. Look at her ass. Look at, look at her. I'm not going to be that way around her. 
just in case there's any kind of potential jealousy, even if there's no, you know, even if this isn't a, even if it's not a situation where anybody wants this to go anywhere, if I have a female platonic friend, a heterosexual female friend, I'm not going to talk to her a lot about other women. Because even if she doesn't have feelings for me, even if she isn't harboring some sort of secret feelings, I just don't want to put that on her. Unless it's pertinent. Unless it, it actually relates to something specific that I need to talk to a friend about. And that's okay. And I don't get upset. Like, I, you know, when I have female friends who talk to me about guy problems, I don't get jealous most of the time. I have before. Not necessarily, I don't know what it is. It's not exactly jealous, maybe uncomfortable. Like, I've told women before, like, I don't want to hear about your sex life. Like, part of being platonic friends between men and women is I, I don't want to talk about, I don't want to hear about your sex life. And I think you have to be mindful of the fact that you're not talking to another guy or another girl in those situations. So there, there are situations like that where I hold back. I don't say things like you don't say everything to everyone you know. No matter how comfortable you are with a friend, there are some things you don't say to them or you don't talk about. And that's just normal. That's just being decent. That's just having boundaries. So it's not that I feel that you should be able to talk about every single thing. I don't think there's any person. I don't think there's a single person on this earth, no matter how close I am to them, where I will talk to them about every single thing. You know, there's, there's always something that you don't talk about with somebody. But I do feel that if somebody is aggressively against free speech, which some people are, I just don't want them in my life. I don't want to feel like they are scrutinizing me. That's my big, that's just the big one. Free speech is the big one for me. And I have thought about it recently as people are kind of trying to regroup. As the cells, the isolated cells have been trying to merge back into the whole as people have been reaching out more to spend time to, to regroup, I have had to consider, because in general, I don't want to see anybody. In general, I'm not ready to see anybody. Very few people. I want to see very few people right now. And uh, I, I've had to actually consider, you know, there's, there's a couple people who reached out and wanted to hang out who I really want to see. It's important that I see them, and I do have different views from them, but I really want to see them, and it's important to me at some point to, to um, it's important for me to reinvigorate those friendships that have been neglected, I guess you could say. And politics don't matter, but there are a couple people where I'm like, you know what? Because you disagree with me about something that I feel is so fundamental to my own, I mean, I wouldn't be here. You know, I wouldn't be here today if I weren't allowed to express myself as I see fit. So the idea that somebody is fundamentally opposed to that, 
And those same people, if they heard this show, I bet they would just get out their, their notepad. Maybe if I'm lucky, they would just dismiss me. They would just forget about me. But knowing these people, they would probably go through it with a fine-tooth comb and be like, here's where you said this. So here's where he had a problem with women. Here's where he had a problem with this. You know, so it's like, why would I want to spend time around that person? And that's a, an interesting thing about friendship is that I've talked about this before, but in school, there's kind of an understanding that your friendships are fleeting. I have lifelong childhood friends. <clears throat> I have friends that I grew up with that I'm still close friends with today, or I still maintain some level of, t- of contact with, but uh, I, don't, I don't hold on to those friendships. I try to keep all bridges open. I, don't, I never, unless I absolutely have to, I never want to burn a bridge. I always want to keep a channel open, but there are some people where you go through a phase of your life and they're your friend. You spend a lot of time with them. But it's not permanent. It's like being in school. And we kind of accept that in school. Like, we readily accept that you have good friends in high school or elementary school. And that some of those people might move. Especially after high school. If you don't stay in the same town and you go off to college, people make new friends. They don't all just hang out with their high school friends forever. And there's not a lot of resentment about that because people understand that that was just a phase of your life. And it's not an insult to those people. And the channel is open. You know, maybe you will regroup. Maybe in 20 years you'll reconnect. People do that all the time. People reconnect with... with I mean, my mom, before she died, she reconnected with this guy she went to high school with. She was a friend of his in high school. And it turns out, like, after high school, he came out as a gay man. And he has a, a, a villa in Tuscany with his husband. And after, you know, you figure my mom was 71 when she died. I think she probably reconnected with this guy when she was in her late 60s maybe 70. It wasn't that long before she died that she started talking to this guy again. They hadn't talked for possibly over 50 years. And they reconnected as old friends. And she was really excited, and he was really excited. You know, this this uh, this gay man who lives in Tuscany was really excited to reconnect with his high school friend, my mom. So, you know, 50 years can go by and you can reestablish that rapport. So it's not like there's a time limit on like, you know, it's not like you're making a final decision. Again, it's about keeping the channel open. But something that I think people have a harder time with in adulthood, and in part because it's harder to make friends. I know some people really struggle to make friends growing up, and I don't know how I did. I don't know how any of my friends liked me as a kid. I really don't. Not because I hated myself. I I don't know. I just, my attitude was so bad. You know, my attitude about life was so bad in certain ways that I I don't even understand how I had friends. I guess they had bad attitudes too, which is part of it. But, you know, making friends in in adulthood, unless you're like making friends with your coworkers or you're, you're making friends with your kids friends, parents, which is how, I mean, the social circle that I grew up in, like 
everybody's parents were friends with everybody else's parents because that's how you meet people. That's how you meet new people uh, as an adult. There's not a lot of opportunities and a lot of people for good reason don't go to like friendship meetup groups. Like I worked with a guy who he was really lonely and he went to a, I'm trying to think of what it was called. It was basically like a group of single people because I think there was like a potential romantic element. I don't know if it's, it was strictly single people. I think that was his intention though. He was hoping to meet a girl and it's like they meet up and they do activities. They don't know each other. These aren't even acquaintances. They're just random people. You go to a website or a Facebook group, whatever it is, and it'll be like, we're going to meet up at this trail on Saturday, June 20th. And you go there and you meet total strangers with the intention of socializing, making friends. I don't look down on anybody for doing that. I could never do that. And a lot of people could never do that. And so it can be difficult to make friends. So sometimes when people make friends in adulthood or when they have a social circle, they cling on to it. They cling on for dear life, even when it's no longer serving them. And I have a friend who, I'm not going to get too specific here out of respect, but he was dating a woman in her 40s. And she had this social group that he felt was kind of like on the outs. Like it was kind of like they had been this close group of people, but they had all kind of gone their, their own separate, they were kind of pulling apart. He felt, but he felt like his girlfriend was just clinging on for dear life. Like her life depended on this social group staying together. And he tried to kind of communicate that to her, but it was very difficult. It was very difficult for him to say, like, maybe that time has moved on. Like, maybe you're actually holding yourself back or hurting yourself in some way by clinging so desperately to this friend group. And I've seen that play out in my own life, especially as my life has changed as an adult. There are people who I still consider good people and I still consider them friends. And I want nothing more than to keep that channel open. But I also think, hey, we spent five years hanging out every weekend. And something changed. And I'll readily admit it might be me. But there's no going back to that, at least not now. Maybe in 50 years there will be. Maybe in 50 years we'll hang out every weekend again. But there's people who just, you're like, you know, that was a time in my life. And I've moved on in the same way that you move on in school. But I think you should remember that, you know, in the same way that you, your friends kind of would move away or do something else when you were growing up, or sometimes, you know, I found this experience, like when you're in elementary school, your friend group is often based on which class you're in that year. Like I can think of years where I didn't spend much time with a good friend of mine because we weren't in the same class. Like we weren't in the same class, so we didn't see each other as much. We didn't make plans as much. And we were little kids at that time. But you just kind of accepted it. It was natural. And it's the same thing for your social life as an adult, where there's no need to cling on desperately. You keep that channel open, and you don't burn bridges because they might need your help. And that, and that's the difference. Like these people that I 
am cautious about seeing again. If they called me and said, hey, I really need help with something, I would be there. And I would hope that they would be there for me if I needed that help. That's why you keep channels open. Like if they got a hold of me and they're like, hey, my mom died. I know that you've been through this. Let's talk. You know, I would be there for them, 100%. But when it comes to just day-to-day life and hanging out and talking, I am having to consider right now, you know, which of those friendships are worth putting energy toward because I have very little. I have very little energy to put toward that type of thing right now. Um, so it's just where we're at. And I don't think I'm alone. I don't think I'm alone at all in that. Something else I want to talk about before this is over, unrelated to everything else, is it crossed my mind this morning, like I was remembering working at a place where for a company party, they had a murder mystery game. And this acting troupe came in, like we, we rented a, a hotel banquet hall. And, and so this acting troupe, it was a trend for a few years, you know, because I don't know if this used to exist, because you, you think about like old company parties, like old timey company parties. And it's like there's alcohol, maybe music, maybe a band, some form of entertainment. But I wonder when like this idea of like games started because the fact that a murder mystery troupe could exist at all, like, you're not going to go to a party in the 1970s. You're not going to go to an office party in the 1970s where you're going to play a murder mystery game and hire an acting troupe who does this professionally. And you saw this, too, with, like, escape rooms. Like, the idea of companies having fun beyond just the party itself, beyond drinking and socializing outside of work, these sorts of activities became popular. And so my company hired one of these murder mystery acting troops. And it, it was interesting because it became controversial in the office because there was a woman who worked there who said, I'm not comfortable with that. I'm not comfortable like being lighthearted about murder. And she was the only one. And everybody thought it was weird. Everybody thought it was weird that this woman didn't want to make light of murder by playing this fake murder mystery game. I mean, it's basically Clue. It's basically live action Clue. Lack. L-A-C. Lack. Live action Clue. It's the new, it's the new LARP is Lack. Live action Clue. You're basically playing live action Clue. And I would ask, like, would this woman have a problem with somebody playing Clue? But I realized there was something personal. It was never stated directly, but it kind of came out that I think her, somebody close to her husband had been murdered at some point. So it makes total sense that she wouldn't be entirely comfortable with the idea of someone making light of murder, especially in a professional setting at a company party. But it did make me think at the time, like, how casual we are about murder. And I talked about this a little bit in the Sleepers episode. I know it's come up on here before, but I've talked about how, you know, rape in a movie, like sexual violence in a movie is visceral. Like, even if it's just going on in the background. In some class I took in college, we watched a movie about 
war. It was a for, it was a foreign film about war. I don't remember what it was, but there's a scene where it's showing this battle, and it involves a town. It's like a battle raging in a town, and I think it's based on a, a real war. And it just like it just like pans the battlefield, and as it pans the battlefield, you just see the soldier raping a woman, and it's not a, a focal point of the story. It's just you just see it for a second, and, and it's like. I saw this in a classroom, and I think everybody just, like, tensed up when they saw that. Meanwhile, you're seeing people get killed. You're seeing all these people be murdered. But you see this glimpse of a soldier raping a woman, and it, it that's the only thing I remember about this movie. That is the only thing I remember about this movie. And I used the example of Deliverance, where even though that's a movie about this adventure, the rape scene is so horrific and memorable that there's a lot of people who, when they hear about Deliverance, they just think, oh yeah, the male rape movie. The, the male rape movie. And, and it's just, it's interesting that we are so casual about murder. And you could say that we've been desensitized to it because we've been overexposed to it. You could say, that, oh, the reason why people don't really make a big deal about seeing murder in movies or why a company would have the audacity to have a murder mystery party and that it's not considered audacious by anybody except this woman who maybe a relative of her husband had been murdered. But, you know, the fact that it's not even considered audacious, it's not even considered particularly bold to make light of murder. I don't think that people have necessarily been desensitized to it from seeing too much of it in movies, TV, the news because we see a lot of, we we see and hear a lot about fictionalized murder and we see and hear a lot about real life murder whether it's true crime documentaries whether it's a horror movie a fictional horror movie we are just surrounded by murder and i've heard the argument that oh society has made us desensitized to moita well, keep in mind that people used to see a lot more murder. A lot more people used to be murderers. Like you think about back in the day, if a guy raped your daughter, it was somewhat acceptable, maybe completely acceptable to go kill him. People used to go to the town square and watch someone get their head chopped off, watch them get hanged. A lot more men used to go to war, and war would come to them. Like this movie about a town that there's a war raging in this town. People are dying left and right. There used to be a lot more men with blood on their hands. Whether that blood on their hands came from being a soldier, whether it came from some sort of vendetta. A lot more people used to be killers, and I believe the earlier on you go, the more you might find that. I don't know. But I don't think we've become more desensitized to murder. Because I think we used to be, I think our relationship, and let's get away from murder and just talk about killing. Because murder has a certain legal connotation. And I'm talking about basically any time someone is killed by someone else deliberately. I don't think we're more desensitized to it. I think it's actually more foreign to us now. Because we typically only see it from afar. 
We only hear about it from afar. I don't think that so much has desensitized us as much as maybe recontextualized it a little bit. But I think people were more desensitized to death and murder when they were going to the town square to see it. When chances are your dad had been to war and seen people get blown apart and die. You know, and there's still people who see that today. I mean, there's still young men who go to war. You know, of course there are. But I don't necessarily buy into the desensitization argument. And it's sort of a chicken and the egg thing, too. Where you look at it and you say, oh, the reason why people are so casual about murder, the reason why people don't make a big deal about seeing murder in movies or on the news, in most cases, you know, obviously there's certain sensational stories where it's like, oh, there was a mass shooting. There's certain types of murder that that are a big deal to us, which is weird. It's weird that certain types of murder or murders that occur with a certain frequency murders that include a a group of people being murdered at the same time, you know, those catch our interest more. Those are more sensational. And not sensational in a fake way, just truly sensational. They cause a sensation. You know, not something that's been falsely sensationalized, but it's a thing where, you know, we do still respond to murder, but for the most part, we are pretty casual about murder. And I think the best example of that is just the fact that we don't tend to care about seeing people get killed in movies. But meanwhile, rape is the fate worse than death. Torture is the is the fate worse than death. But it's a chicken and the egg argument because you have to ask yourself, are people so casual about the idea of murder and death because they've been exposed to it in entertainment and the media so much? Or do entertainment and the media deal with death so casually and so often because we are already desensitized to it? You know what I mean? Like, it's, it's a chicken or the egg thing. Like, did our desensitization come from seeing so much of it? Or did seeing so much of it come from the fact that we were already desensitized so companies production companies thought, let's make a movie about Moida, and it won't even be controversial. Maybe a little bit of both. But uh, anyway, so this woman was, who I I liked, I I really liked this woman, I want to say. Out of all the people I worked with at that time, she was actually one of my favorites. And this might play into the murder thing. This might play into her opposition to the murder mystery plan, because we all voted on it. And if you've ever worked in an office where people vote, especially on fun things, it sucks. Because <laughs> people get really passionate. People get really upset about things like, like if you've ever been in a company where like the company does something nice for you, like buys you lunch once in a while, and they allow the employees to vote on it. On one hand, it seems nice and democratic, but it almost always creates more tension. It almost always makes things worse, which is which is the opposite of what they are trying to do when they buy everybody lunch. So if you run a business, I would say, and you and you like to treat your employees to fun things once in a while, I would say get a feel for what most of your employees like, which if you have half a brain isn't too hard to figure out, and then just make the decision for them. And some people might not like it. I mean, I had a coworker once who they ordered Indian food 
for lunch. And my coworker who only ate like hamburgers from Red Robin left. This coworker was so upset at the idea of having to eat Indian food or having to be the one at the table who's not eating the Indian food. And then you're going to get looks and questions. Why aren't you eating what we're eating? It's primitive. It's primal. That this coworker just left. And you know what? That used to be me. I've talked on here before about when I was growing up, I was terrified of most food. And I would actually not go to certain events and not do certain things that revolved around food. Like I would avoid potlucks because I just didn't want to be forced to eat things I didn't want to eat. And I was just terrified. It's so silly. But I I, I honestly was, you know, not shaking in my boots about it, but I, I didn't want to do it. I was scared. And so this coworker who left because they were so scared of Indian food, while, yeah, it's kind of embarrassing, I completely related to it. There was a point in my life where I might have done the same thing. But anyway, point being, like, people get really opinionated when they're allowed to vote on something. They become invested. And you can see that with politics. Like, I mentioned in the last election that I was voting, which I don't normally do, but I I said that I'm going to vote, but I'm not going to be invested in the outcome. I said, I'm going to vote for what I feel is right, but I am not going to be too deeply invested in the outcome. But you can see where people, the second that you place your vote, if you don't have discipline, you are going to be deeply invested, even if you weren't before that, even if you just thought, hey, you know, whatever, I'll just vote. Yeah, I guess I'll vote. The second that you fill in that little bubble you have now invested in it unless you catch yourself and say, I did what I feel is right, even if my vote is meaningless, even if things don't go my way, I'm not going to be emotionally invested one way or another. I'm not going to get too excited if things go my way, and I'm not going to get too upset if they don't. But, you know, being in an office where people vote on something like what everybody's going to have for lunch and people start having opinions, oh, so-and-so, oh, it has to have a vegan option for so-and-so. It has to have this for so-and-so. Oh, so-and-so just doesn't like healthy food, so we can't order from a place that has primarily healthy options. So-and-so only eats pizza, hamburgers, and ranch dressing. They don't like that we decided to order food from the vegan restaurant. You know, you know what I mean? It's like somebody always has an opinion. And the second that you allow somebody to vote, and this isn't an argument for fascism. I'm not saying just make people's decisions for them. I'm just saying that sometimes if you're in a position of power, there's actually less trouble in just making a decision for people. By just being like, we're ordering Indian food, whether you like it or not. If you don't want to eat it, okay. But that's what most people are okay with. And somebody's always going to complain. Whether you give people a vote or not, somebody is always going to complain. And so we were voting on whether or not to do this murder mystery thing. I think we had a set of activities that were available. We had a set of different activities that we could do at this company party, and they allowed us to vote. But of course, that's going to be a problem. And most people were cool with the murder mystery, but this one woman wasn't. And I I really liked her. And one thing I really liked about her is when she first started at the company, 
She just straight up said to people, this blew my mind. It was amazing. She just straight up said to people, oh, just so you know, I don't have a sense of humor. She said those exact words. She said, I don't have a sense of humor, just so you know. So if you guys like make a lot of jokes in the office, I'm not going to get it. What an amazing thing to just volunteer. And of course, it's, I, I'm sure this woman laughs at something. And it, I, I, I think I've talked about her before because there ended up being a lot more to her than met the eye. But just to tell people, I don't have a sense of humor. And I should have done that. Like, even though I was a guy who was like the only, I basically communicated only in one-liners and wisecracks. So I couldn't have said I don't have a sense of humor. But I feel like that is a pretty good approach just to tell people that because offices these days are so filled with recycled sitcom jokes. Like people who work in offices have spent the last decade or more watching The Office They've been watching Parks and Recreation, and I've never seen that one. I saw a couple episodes of The Office, The American Office, as they say, and I laughed. I actually thought it was funny. So I, I'm not criticizing the, the shows themselves, but people like, like office humor today, especially among people who are like under 50 and probably old, probably over 50 now, but let's say under 60, basically people who aren't senior citizens that sort of sitcom humor has been so ingrained in them. And it's not just sitcom style humor. It's also, they're they're actually repeating sitcom jokes. A lot of the jokes that people make in an office is just quoting sitcoms about working in an office. And that's kind of unbearable. You know, I don't get mad at people for that, but it is kind of unbearable to be around that. And so this woman just saying, oh, I don't have a sense of humor. That's a way of just shutting it down. And I respect that so much more from someone who thinks they have a good sense of humor, but doesn't get your jokes. As I've gone on about countless times, one of my biggest pet peeves is people who don't understand that you're trying to be funny. And go, what? You don't have to think I'm funny. You don't have to actually think I'm funny, but you have to know that I'm trying to be funny. But everybody who has a sense of humor thinks that they have a good sense of humor even if they're one of those people who kind of tries to like beat the game and they're like I have a stupid sense of humor I like potty humor I'm a 30 year old man and I like talking about the bathroom jokes you know even people who do that who are like just so you know I have a really low brow sense of humor which is okay you know it's okay to have a low brow sense of humor I I like low brow humor too But everybody with a sense of humor tends to think that they have a good sense of humor. They tend to think that they are a good judge of humor. But oftentimes they don't even realize when someone's trying to be funny. And that's there's such a disconnect to that. When someone doesn't even realize you're trying to be funny. And if you try to communicate to that, that to them, if you try to say to them, no, actually, I'm trying to be funny. They're like, they don't trust you. It's like they don't believe you. If they didn't pick up on the fact that you were trying to be funny initially, it's like they don't believe you when you say that your intention was just joking around. So I appreciate the fact that this woman, instead of being the person who's like, I don't get it. I don't think you were joking. 
Instead of being that person, I like that she just said straight up, I don't have a sense of humor. And that probably plays into her opposition to the murder mystery thing. Even if there was some personal connection to a murderer that made her and her husband uncomfortable, I'm sure part of that was that she didn't see the humor in a murder mystery game. But we ended up having the murder mystery game, and it was so awful. And it was poorly planned as well, because we were a relatively small office. And so everybody who was at this company party knew each other. Everybody knew each other's plus one, more or less. They'd at least heard of them. Everybody knew who everyone's plus one was. Everybody knew who everyone's husband, wife, significant other was. Everybody knew basically who they were. Everybody was recognizable. And so the way the murder mystery game worked was they would like call up certain people. Like they had somebody pretend to be dead and then, you know, went through this whole game of giving people clues. And then they would call just random people up to the front of the room and have you do something. They would make people laugh. Like, for example, there was this kid that I worked with and they told him after doing some sort of scenario where they asked him questions, you know, because I think there was somebody pretending to be a detective. Somebody from the acting troupe was pretending to be the detective. And they would ask random employees of our company questions, interrogate them, things like that. And then I remember this one thing. They asked this kid that I worked with. He was probably in his early 20s. They asked him to, like, basically lay on the ground, like act like he had been knocked out. I don't think they quote unquote killed him, but I think for some reason, this storyline, this murder mystery storyline, it it required him to lay down too. And he did a straight up, maybe what they call a pratfall, but where you just fall straight on your back. And this is a hard floor. And this kid is not a pro wrestler. He's not a stunt man. He's just some like chubby computer programmer. And he just threw himself onto his back really hard. And I have to imagine he screwed himself up. I have to imagine he hurt himself because everybody was taken aback that he just threw himself on his back when they said lay down. I I still just remember that. I'm like, wow, he took quite a fall on purpose. I'm, I'm impressed. I'm impressed that he was willing to do that to his body just to entertain his coworkers. But during this whole murder mystery, there was this one girl sitting at a table because they had a bunch of different tables and everybody was, you know, there was a group of people sitting at each table and everybody at every table knew each other. It was a small company, but there was this one girl and she was kind of dressed like an, like a part of the acting troupe. She was wearing like a, a fedora or actually a trilby. What people call fedoras are actually trilbies, it turns out. And, and, but just, it's funny how just, fedora has come to mean something else not that i give a shit but it's funny that with the whole nerd fedora thing what those little hats actually are are called trilbies and when girls wear those it's it's abominable a girl wearing one of those quote-unquote fedora trilbies is just that's it's one thing to see a guy wearing one it's one thing to see a nerd in like plaid shorts and a dragon shirt wearing a fedora. But there's something particularly sad about a girl wearing one. And so this girl was wearing one, and nobody knew who she was. She was all by herself, just sitting at one of the tables. And I noticed her, because I was like, who's she with? She's not somebody's plus one, but she's pretending to just be one of us. 
And then at the end of the game, they you you try to obviously you try to guess who the murderer was. And I went into it thinking that they must have pre-selected one of the employees to be the murderer. Like it's not going to be a member of the acting troupe because that's too obvious. But one of my coworkers, like first guess, she raised her hand and said, I think it's her. And she was sitting at the same table as this young woman in the Fedora Trilby thing. And she was like, I think it's her. And it was. And, and then we, we talked about it and we were like, this is too easy. Like, what did you think that we didn't know each other? Like, because I can imagine that would work at a big company party. At a big company party, it would totally work to just station a random member of the acting troupe at a table and just act like she belongs there for some reason. Because a lot of companies, you don't know all of the employees. You don't know all of your coworkers. You don't necessarily know their significant others or their, their friends. So you're not necessarily going to know that some random person sitting at your table doesn't belong there. But we were small enough and insular enough to be like, why is a random girl wearing a trilby? She looks like an aspiring actress who would work for an acting troupe. Why is she just sitting by herself at one of the tables? And why is she the only person doing that? So they really didn't plan well. Because it was just glaringly obvious who the murderer was supposed to be. But interestingly, before the murder mystery game started, the woman and her husband who had didn't want to participate, they left. Because they did some speeches, they, you know, we had dinner, and then after dinner we played this game, and before the game started, they left because there must have been something in... in uh, I don't remember if I was told explicitly, but somehow through the grapevine, it sounded like her husband had some sort of trauma, you know, someone he know. I mean, maybe his mom was murdered. You know, maybe he had good reason not to make light of murder. But it is interesting that we were all making light, that it was professionally acceptable to almost everybody there to joke about a murder. Like, imagine if there were rape mystery games. Like, imagine if your company was voting on team building activities or company party activities and they were like well one of our options is a murder mystery game another option is a rape mystery game we have to figure out who raped somebody and 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 saying that sounds offensive like even me saying that sounds incredibly offensive like ooh how dare you but we do see that as worse than murder we do see that as the fate worse than death And it would be completely, wildly unacceptable. But to this person at the company, this husband of a coworker, who it sounds like had a murder happen close to them, saying, oh yeah, we're having a murder mystery party for fun, to him that probably was the equivalent of of saying, hey, we're having a rape mystery party. But it just shows you that, you know... we have kind of we we are desensitized to murder in some way whereas we are not that desensitized to sexual assault cuz the idea of a rape mystery party we'd be reading about that in the newspapers that would be a huge controversy that would be all over the place yet is it fundamentally different from a murder mystery party 
Is it fundamentally different from anything else that makes light of something horrible? But that said, I mean, I completely understand as someone who's never been sexually assaulted and someone who's never been murdered, someone who has no personal experience with either of those things myself, and I've also never done those to anybody, uh, uh, it's, it's one of those things where I understand why rape is worse because you carry that with you in some strange way. Murder is liberation. Even though you don't want anybody to be murdered, even though you don't want to be murdered, there's something liberating about it where even though somebody died a horrific death, they have moved on. Their spirit has moved on. Even if you don't believe in the spirit, even if you don't believe in the soul, there's a part of just the casual American citizen, in today's climate at least, who says murder isn't as bad as rape, at least when we're exposed to it in you know the context of entertainment. And I think part of that is because you know rape is a, a wound that someone carries with them forever, whereas murder that person is gone and it's their family who has the burden. So I think there is this form of liberation, you know, in the same way that death is liberating. And, you know, whether it's Christianity, Hinduism, Buddhism, a lot of religious outlooks reinforce the idea that death is in some way a release or a liberation. So I think that plays a role in why people are willing to be more casual about murder than they would rape. Why murder is an appropriate game. A murder mystery is an appropriate game for an office party, but a rape mystery party isn't. The woman, though, who left, the woman who protested, there was a lot more to her than meets the eye. She was humorless. And I don't say that that was by her own admission. I don't know if she was humorless. I doubt that she never laughs. But she said herself she's humorless. And she said that as a way of basically shutting people down from trying to make office jokes to her. Really a smart strategic move on her part. But I came to find out that this woman had a Danzig tattoo. And I think I've spoken about her before because we did this little office game. This, this particular company that I worked for, we were always playing little games. We were always doing little activities. Like once a month, we always did like some little fun activity. And I, I don't, you know, even though those things, you know, I would rather just hang out. Like rather than playing a little game, I would rather people just be allowed to hang out and socialize or something. I, I don't really love having to play some little game, but they can be fun. But it, it becomes very like show and tell. It, it becomes very, it, it can feel like kindergarten or something. Because we, we did this activity one time where they asked us to name our three favorite albums or our three favorite musicians and that's always a tricky one for me because I basically just named things that I liked when I was a teenager that I still like today. Because there's plenty of things I liked as a teenager that I'm embarrassed to have liked. But I try to find things that I was deeply into as a teenager that might not have as much, you know, they might not be an active part of my music listening life today, but they're relatively inoffensive. 
And I mean, in this case, they're not things like in this case, I named things that are still relevant to me. But anyway, we, we had to name three musicians, which is always a dilemma for me. Just because it's like there's there's weird and obscure stuff that's important to me that I'm not just going to name to my coworkers, not because it's even offensive or anything, just because like, why do I need to get esoteric about my musical interests to these people who don't give a shit and will probably think I'm just being a jerk off by naming stuff they've never heard of. But I think I just said like Danzig, Black Sabbath and Elvis or something. You know, I think that that's what I said, or Dolly Parton. You know, I think I went with those. Like, just, you know, Danzig isn't going to offend anybody. Most people aren't going to know who Danzig is in in the average office. But I I said Danzig, and this the the humorless woman who protested the murder mystery party, she turned to me and she goes, really, Danzig? She goes, my first tattoo was Danzig. I got it in the late 80s. So she got a Danzig tattoo, like, within a year or two of the band Danzig starting. And it turned out she was an ex punk and she brought in pictures of herself from the like early mid eighties with a giant Mohawk sides of her head shaved. And this woman now is like this, I would say she was in her mid forties, maybe early, maybe 45 to 50. I don't know. I don't know her age, long hair, very conservative, you know, you have to, you always have to give a disclaimer when you use that word, very conservative appearance, not, uh, you know, politically conservative, but she had a very conservative appearance. And so you wouldn't have guessed that she had been a street punk in the eighties. And you would not have guessed at all that she had a Danzig tattoo. And I never found out where or what it was. I have to assume it was the skull. I have to assume it was the horned Danzig skull, which was actually stolen from a comic book. I don't know how many people know that, but the Danzig logo, the skull with horns, it's in the background of, I'm trying to think of the comic. I want to say Youngblood. It's not not a super old comic. I think it was a comic that came out in the years before Danzig started Danzig. And you, you can only see half of the skull, but it's in the background of some scene that's playing out on the cover of this comic book. You just see half of that skull, and it's absolutely the same skull. So Danzig, I know he's into comic books. Danzig has his own comic book publishing company. So he must have seen that skull and thought like, oh, let's, I'm going to have somebody draw the full skull. I'm going to have somebody take that skull that's in the background of a comic book cover and elaborate on it. And so I, I assume that she has that skull. It would be really awesome if she has the Danzig skull as a tramp stamp. It would be really awesome if her tattoo was somewhere scandalous. I don't know that it was. I never saw it. But it was cool. You never know what kind of connection you're going to make with somebody where this woman who was very stoic, very quiet, you just thought she was just a fairly boring person. And I don't mean that as an insult because my goal in those situations is for people to think I'm boring. You want your coworkers to think you're boring. It's an asset to be a boring coworker. It doesn't mean you can't have a little bit of fun, but in general, you don't want people thinking about you too much at a job. 
And so it's to this woman's credit that I say that she seemed boring. But then you find out that she, like, and, you know, when she listed her favorite artist, she listed the Dead Kennedys. I don't remember what else. But she had, you know, she had been, you know, uh, a street punk. And then she, you know, I don't know if there were drugs involved. Like, she did kind of come across like somebody who might have overcome a heroin addiction earlier in life. She had a little bit of that energy. I know that she still drank, but anyway, enough of that. Uh, Just, it was cool to make that connection. And then when I left that job, she got a hold of me and she said, hey, I have something for you. And I was like, really? And she goes, yeah, I have two old Danzig posters of mine from the eighties. So these are posters that she got probably in the late eighties, maybe the early nineties at the latest, but they were vintage Danzig posters that she still had. And she was like, I want to give you my, my old Danzig posters. And they were gigantic. They'll take up an entire wall. I would call these supersized. I would say that these were extra large posters. And she had two of them. And they'd clearly been hanging up because you could see the holes. You could see the the little thumbtack holes from where she had them hung up. So, like, her bedroom at some point was probably a Danzig shrine. Because these things would take up most of a wall. And she gave them to me, and I was honored. I was honored to get these old Danzig posters. And I, I should really find a room and put them up somewhere here. Maybe I'll, I need to find where they are. I still have them, but I haven't looked at them in a while. The night that she gave them to me, because I met up with her and her husband so that she could give those to me, and we just had a drink and then went on our merry way. And that night, I, like, unrolled the Danzig posters and just, like, lit a joint and just looked at them. <laughs> I was so excited. I was just like, whoa. I just I just had this joint, and I just lit a joint and just, like, smoked this joint while staring at these unrolled Danzig posters, like, on my bed. They took up my entire bed. So you just never know what someone's story is, because you would not expect the woman who has a Danzig tattoo and was an 80s punk... You would not expect her to be the same person who protests a a murder mystery game. Like, you wouldn't expect a woman who liked Danzig enough to get a tattoo of his logo. You would not expect her to care much about casual murder. I mean, you think about how many Danzig albums are about that. You think about how dark Danzig is, you know. Even if you think of it as theatric, which it is. You know, Danzig is, it's a theatric darkness but so is a murder mystery game. So it's inter- it's just interesting to me that maybe it was more out of concern for her husband's experience having had some sort of murder happen in his life. Maybe it had more to do with him than it did her. But it's still funny to me that the person who was a Danzig fanatic was also the person who didn't want to participate in a murder mystery game and found it offensive. So you can never judge somebody entirely right off the bat. Yeah, it's a cliche. Don't judge a book by its cover. I judge books by their cover. Not as a rule, but I do. Sometimes you can. But you never really know what someone's history is. You never really know what someone's past is. And you never know who someone truly is. In the same way that I, I talk about the value of being a boring coworker, 
the value of being a boring person in certain situations, in people thinking that you're more generic than you are, in people thinking that you're more... Um, just generic and boring, you know, there, that, that is more valuable to me. I would much rather someone see me and think, oh, that person is just a normie, a normie. You know, I, I would much rather look at someone and think, oh, that person is just a, a boring normie, a bore, a normal bory. And then find out they're actually an interesting person with an interesting backstory. I would rather have that play out than the opposite, which happens all the time, which is that someone looks very decorated. Someone looks like they're into stuff. You look like you're into stuff. Oh, you got a bunch of very specific tattoos. You wear band shirts. You have piercings. You're very expressive. You're very expressive in how you present yourself. A lot of times you find out those people are boring. A lot of times you find out that those people are actually very normal and boring. Those people are actually squares. And that's what we're dealing with now. Where it seems like, in my experience at least, some of the most highly decorated people, not to be confused with highly decorated members of the armed forces, but highly decorated people, people who adorn themselves with the symbols of subculture. You'll often find there's not much below that. They're still human beings who you should respect. You know, <laughs> I'm not saying they're worthless, but I'm just saying you find out that those people who look outwardly interesting or what used to count as interesting... They look artistic or creative. They're expressive. They look like a dog's anal gland that needs to be pushed so that the fluid drains out. You know, these people who, who look that way, you find out that there's not much there. And I had that experience a number of years ago where I had a girlfriend who was very decorated. And there was a lot to her. She was an interesting person. She is an interesting person. But through her, I met some of her friends, and I realized there wasn't much there to some of them. They are people who have attached themselves to certain subcultural identities, a certain sort of alternative way of presenting yourself, and they're some of the most boring people I've truly ever met. And it's good to be able to do both. You know, I think it's good to be able to, you don't have to look the same way all the time. I think one of the problems with getting tattoos and piercings and dyeing your hair and uh, that sort of thing is you can't choose. Once you've done that, you can't choose to look plain. Whereas if you are plain, you can choose to look more exciting. You can, you can choose to, to wear a certain style of dress. You can choose the times and places when you want to look a certain way. So I think like coming across, like coming from a, a def, coming from a generic default place, I, I've chosen that in part because I feel like it gives you a larger range. 
Like if I do want to look like a metalhead, a metalhead, I can. But I can also look like a jock. And it doesn't really make a difference. I'm at a point in my life where I don't even really think about it that much. A few years ago, my mom had a friend who ran a little boutique store that sold clothes. And she bought me, she wanted to give them some business. So she bought, a, she bought some stuff from them. And she bought me a Star Wars shirt there. And it's a cat with Darth Vader's head lifting up its arm. It looks like it's Sieg Heiling. Its arm is exactly the same as a Sieg Heil, the Roman salute. But it's supposed to be it's supposed to be like Darth Vader using the Force. So this cat has a Darth Vader head, and it's lifting its arm in what looks like a Sieg Heil. And there's a fish getting lifted out of its fishbowl. So the joke is, is that like a cat who has a Darth Vader head is using the Force to get that fish. And my mom bought that for me, and it, it's fine. You know, it's sweet. My mom, know, she knew that I loved Star Wars growing up. She wanted to give her friend's store some business, so she bought me a Star Wars shirt. And you know what? I wear the shit out of that shirt. And, I, and I, even before my mom died, I wore that shirt. I don't wear it all the time. There, there are certain situations I'm in where I don't wear that shirt. Trust me. <laughs> like, uh, you know, I'm, I don't date anymore, at least not right now. But I can tell you, if I were going on a first date with a girl, I wouldn't wear that Star Wars shirt. I would not wear a Star Wars shirt. But you know what? I get kind of a, a perverse thrill out of wearing it because I know that people probably see me wearing a Star Wars shirt and assume I'm a certain type of person. And I mean, that sort of thing is generic now. Like there was a certain point in time where if you wore a Star Wars shirt, yeah, it was mainstream, but you were probably a little bit on the nerdy side. It probably indicated that you had some sort of niche, nerdy set of interests if you wore a Star Wars shirt. But Star Wars has been so blown out. It's been so stretched and blown out that wearing a Star Wars shirt just communicates to people that you're generic now. And I don't say that as an insult because I wear one myself, but I kind of enjoy that. I kind of enjoy that when I wear my Star Wars shirt out, it probably gives people a completely different impression of me than, than they otherwise would have. And, and you know, this is going to go down a narcissistic rabbit hole here, but I had an experience some years back where I met up with people for beers and I met a friend of a friend and I noticed that like these guys ran a screen printing company. These new people I met, they ran a screen printing company and they were like into hip hop. They, they were kind of like those, that artsy sort of hip hop aesthetic. That's the sort of people they were, which is not my thing. But hey, you know, these are friends of friends. I'll have a beer with them. They're decent enough people. Sure. Uh, are you kidding me? I, I, don't, I, don't, I don't share beers with artsy hip-hop screen printers as a rule I don't but a friend vouched for them and uh, at that time I was in like full I mean I'm, I'm always in Seahawks mode you know half the time I'm wearing a Seahawks hat and so I probably just looked like a jock at the time just wearing like Seahawks gear and shorts probably looked just like your your everyday normal jock 
And later on that night, I was hanging out with my friend, the other guys, the, the artsy hip hop screen printers went off and did something else. And I was talking to my friend and he was like, Oh, it was funny. Like when you, when you got up to go to the bathroom, one of those dudes said, I thought Eric was a total bro at first. Like when we first started talking, I just assumed he was a total bro and turns out he's not. That's really cool. And I was not insulted by that. I was not even remotely insulted. I actually took it as a compliment. The fact that this guy, his initial first impression, which we all have of people, whether we want to or not, his first impression of me is like, who's this bro? Who invited this bro to sit down with us? And then he found out that I wasn't that. And I, I kind of am, in, you know, but I'm, you know, it's not that I'm not a bro at all, because I, I feel like I have certain qualities that would could could make me a bro. I don't know. I don't really know. I don't really think about it. But I I would rather somebody think I'm a bro and find out that I'm creative or or think I'm a bro and find out that there's other stuff going on. I would rather be in that position myself. And that's also something that I appreciate in other people too. Not as a rule, like it's it's like I have plenty of friends who look a certain way who you can kind of read from, you can kind of tell what their interests are from how they look, tattoos, you know, whatever it is, what they're wearing, the way they dress, the amount of black they wear. You know, there's people where you can kind of tell what they're all about. I don't have any friends who are rivet heads or anything. I don't have any friends who are rivet heads. But I have friends where you can kind of tell what they're all about from how they look and they're interesting people and that that is what it is but i do find that i'm always a little bit excited when i find out that somebody who was superficially generic or boring actually has a lot more going on and if if somebody sees that in me at any point i take it as a compliment and i think i take it as a compliment because often i feel so weird I feel that I've alienated myself so much, not even by choice, just by being who I naturally am. I feel like I've alienated people so much. And that feedback loop has gone round and round in my head so many times that it's actually refreshing to be reminded that some people just think I'm normal. And whether they're interested in getting to know me or I'm interested in getting to know them, whatever. But sometimes it's nice just to be like, oh, some people just see you and think, you're just an everyday normal person. Uh, but, uh, you know, and, and it depends on your interaction, too, with people. It's like not everybody needs to know everything about you. I say that as I do a show that's basically a diary. This show is basically social media. Pretty much. In this, the sort of person who gets on social media and is like, today... I took Batty to the groomer to have his anal gland drained. The company was great, which they were. There's a sort of person who goes on social media and says, let me tell you about my day. Dear social meteor diary. That's pretty much what this show is, right? This show is just my social media. But, uh, you don't have to express everything about you in every possible moment. And a lot of people just know that. A lot of people, it, it turns out, are just naturally mature and well-rounded. And they, they know that people don't need to know everything about them. 
Every single person doesn't need to know the exact same things about you. Just like I was talking about, like, no matter how close I am to some people, there's things that I don't even talk about with them. But I might talk about that thing with somebody else because I, that relationship is based on something else. Like, like speaking of having platonic female friends, the conversations I have with, with female friends are substantially different than the conversations I have with my male friends. It's just the nature of the relationship. The conversations are going to be different. And a girl that I'm friends with doesn't necessarily need to be subjected to the kinds of conversations I have with men, not because it's locker room talk, not because it's locker room talk, just because it, it, it's specific to a given relationship. But I think we live in a time where we want people to know everything about us and we expect them to understand that. We want people to know as much as possible about us and we expect them to just readily understand it, which is very difficult. It's very, very difficult to just readily understand somebody, especially when you get a ton of information on them, especially when they're has been this oversaturation of not just information in general. You know, I was talking last night about just the, the oversaturation of information and how I would be willing to bet that 2020 was the most saturated that a given individual has ever been in information. When you think about the technology, when you think about everything that people have access to, I would bet that last year was the most saturated that the average human being has ever been in information. But it's true for information about us, too. We are saturated in information about each other. And we saturate other people in information about us. But not everybody needs to know everything about you. Not everybody needs to know what you are right off the bat. And it is a valuable asset for people to just think, Oh, I thought he was a bro. I thought he was boring. And you know what? It turns out some people, they will think you're boring right off the bat. And even when they get to know you, they'll still think you're boring. But they might even still like you. I mean, there's people out there who I consider superficially boring. I, cons <laughs> I consider them internally boring. But you know what? They rule. For whatever reason, I think it works and it rules. So even just being boring inside and out isn't necessarily a bad thing. And we need boring people too. We need some people to just be boring. And with what I was talking about a second ago, with like the idea that a lot of people feel the need to express as much about themselves as possible now, part of that comes from kind of wanting to be noteworthy. Wanting to be significant, wanting to be almost like a little celebrity, which is a byproduct of the internet and social media. The stars have been brought down a little closer, and the people have been brought up a little higher, and the people have much greater ability to produce their own material. So, of course, people would start to think of themselves as these little celebrities. And just let me tell you, I've always thought of myself as a little celebrity. So this show isn't nothing.
This shows just one little blip in a long line of, you know, identifies as a, as a, as celebrity owned, <laughs> you know, talking about the dog groomers, little Google listing that said identifies as woman owned. This show identifies as celebrity owned. This show identifies as a celebrity owned show because no matter how hard I try, it's hard not to feel like I myself am a little celebrity, even though nobody else thinks that. It's hard not to feel that way, especially when you talk like this, especially when you do it, especially when you do a show. But, uh, you know, it's not necessary because the world needs boring people. And it's not a fault to be boring. There's nothing inherently wrong about being boring with being boring and I think we're about to enter a period and maybe we're already there where being boring might be one of the greatest assets you can have it might be how you survive it doesn't mean you should censor yourself but you might want to consider ways that you could be more boring and how that might be able to help you This land is mine God gave this land to me This brave This golden land to me And when the morning sun Reveals her hills and plains I see a land where children can run free So take my